Welcome everyone to Weldfound, a podcast about our world growing larger when we localize and get smaller, broadening the horizons of our very own backyard. And thanks to Weld Community Foundation, who makes this podcast possible. For more info, head to weldcommunityfoundation.org. Today's episode is a feature on the nonprofit Free Our Girls and its founder, Megan Lundstrom. It's a compelling and moving story, a powerful one. I do want to state this episode makes reference to the sex trade and violent situations therein. And I wanted to let you know in case you're listening with kids or find yourself emotionally shaken by these topics. I will say this, I walked away from my interviews with Free Our Girls just overwhelmed by the incredible work that they're doing here in our community and for those trapped in the sex trade. Let's begin. My name is Megan Lundstrom. I am the founder and director of locally based, nationally serving nonprofit, Free Our Girls. And um, I am a Greeley native and um, spent a few years away there, but am back now and um, doing work in our community. Yeah, so my story is very much a part of Free Art Girls' story. Um, I grew up here and um, lower middle class family, very supportive family, and um, really had a great childhood, a great upbringing, very safe home. Um, And it was not until I ended up pregnant at 18 with my first child that my vulnerability started to um, appear. So I ended up in an abusive marriage for five years where I had two children um, with my then husband. And that power and control, that cycle of power and control, and the normalization of intimate partner violence really set the stage for when my traffickers entered the scene. Um, So I filed for divorce after five years and moved with my children down to Denver, um, just trying to start over. Um, break the control that my husband, my then ex-husband had over me and wanting to start over and provide a good life for my kids. And so I was working full-time, going to school full-time, raising two kids completely by myself. Um, There's not enough hours in the day for all of that. Um, And so it was very exhausting, very overwhelming, and not really much time to process the abuse um, and heal from that in the midst of just trying to keep my head afloat. Um, So my first trafficker, I did not know that he was a trafficker. Um, I met him and he came across as this very charming, good looking, um, successful guy who just swept me off my feet and spent time with my kids and took care of me emotionally, um, financially, um, helped out with my kids. And I just thought this was my knight in shining armor. Um, and so he, one of the things that he really did, um, now that I have had time to process all of this was he asked me a lot of questions about myself that at the time coming from a place of abuse, it felt really good for somebody to ask me about me and what was important to me. And so I thought he was filling my love tank up by spending time with me and complimenting me and wanting to get to know me. Um, what he was doing was trying to find my weaknesses. Where were my vulnerabilities? Where were the voids that he could fill? Uh, 
Um, and so he very quickly realized that he could become my partner and um, a father to my children. Those were my ultimate voids um, on the emotional and psychological side. He also observed that as a single mother, I was struggling financially. And so he also then started to very gently over time suggest different opportunities in the sex industry as a solution to my financial instability. Um, my ex-husband at that time was incredibly financially abusive, even though we were not married anymore. The fact that we owned a home together and he was supposed to pay child support, um, there was a significant amount of financial abuse still going on. And so my trafficker offered this solution of, um, you know, you can be completely financially independent. I will love you no matter what. We can build a future together. Um, you won't have to deal with your painful past. We'll build this new future for us as a family. And so a series of financial events with my ex-husband kind of happened. So this was in 2008 when that um, housing market crashed. We owned a home during that time. Um, he stopped paying the mortgage, which I was on, and I did not have a way to pay that to keep us out of um, going into foreclosure. Um, he stopped paying child support, which was half of my income at that time. So working full-time, going to school full-time, already on government assistance. I didn't know where else to go to make ends meet. Um, and then my car broke down. That was the final, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, so my trafficker was doing this grooming process while all of this chaos was happening in my life. And he was kind of just watching it fall apart and then stepped in with these suggestions of here's a really simple, easy way. It doesn't, nobody has to know about it. I will love you anyways, just this one time. Um, and so that was very, um, that happened over a period of a couple months of just absolute chaos snowballing. And so I found myself very quickly completely entrenched in the sex trade and it was nothing like what he had promised it would be. Physical abuse started, financial abuse started, psychological abuse started. Um, I was under his control for four years. Um, statistically, uh, victims try to escape their traffickers six to 12 times before being successful. Um, so I absolutely attempted escape probably five or six times. So moving in the middle of the night, leaving him, changing the locks, um, changing my phone number, he would find me. Um, so very much that same domestic violence cycle of, I love you. It'll be different this time. Please come back. I messed up. Um, so you have that like honeymoon period and then the tension building and then I would try to escape again. So over and over for those four years. Um, that all culminated um, in 2011, 2010. Um, I left for the last time and he did a drive-by shooting of my babysitter's house, um, put seven bullets in her car. He did a drive-by shooting of my best friend's house. Um, and so those were my two, my two support people in my life at that time. And they didn't want to be anywhere near me because they were literally scared to death um, that they were going to be hurt. So they, they ceased contact with me. So I was completely socially isolated, as you were just mentioning that, just that disconnect and what can happen when people are socially isolated. Um, he then sent two fellow gang members to break into my house. They held my children and I hostage. Um, they took all of our identifying documents, 
um, took my phone, took my cash, took my bank cards. I had absolutely nothing. So I'm in this apartment with no identification. I can't access my bank accounts. Um, if you don't have your social security card, birth certificate, or state issued photo ID, how do you go about getting one of those? Because you need at least one of those to get any of them. So in this really scary place of, I am completely trapped. Um, he had done a really good job of systematically breaking down the relationship between my parents and I. So I was very terrified um, that if my parents knew what was happening, they were going to take custody of my children. Um, and so I just, I was all by myself, completely socially isolated. And then the stigma of you're involved in prostitution. If anybody finds out about it, you're going to lose your kids. You're going to go to jail. Um, everybody thinks that what you are doing, you are doing it because you know, you're sick or you have mental health issues, um, or you just make really bad selfish choices. Um, so that social stigma was going on too, and the shame and guilt. So um, it just so happened that I ended up, long story short, um, meeting another trafficker that I did not know was a trafficker, and my first trafficker sold me to the second trafficker. Um, so the second trafficker stepped in, again, as this knight in shining armor of, I'm going to help you. I'll protect you from this guy. You need to be safe. You, you know, you're a single mom. Um, he lived, this trafficker lived out in Vegas and he was an up and coming musician. And um, he was like, I'm about to sign a contract with a major recording artist. I can, I can help make you famous. Like you can get out of this. You can start doing modeling. You can do, I'll put you in my music videos. Um, you know, come, come move out to Vegas. And so at that time, that was my only perceived out from the situation that I was in. And I was really hopeful that something was going to be different. Um, and it was not. I ended up going to jail my very first night in Vegas for soliciting an undercover officer. Um, over that next year, uh, my ex-husband found out that I was involved in prostitution because of my arrest record. My parents found out that I was involved in prostitution, but they didn't. nobody knew about my trafficker. They didn't know that there was a pimp involved. Um, so I ended up going to jail over that next about 10 months, nine times. Um, it was averaging every couple weeks. And so every time I would go to jail, my pimp would put me on an airplane and send me out of state for a week or two to work somewhere else. Um, so that went on for almost another year out in Vegas while my children were still living with me this whole time. Um, and just an absolute living nightmare of physical abuse, financial abuse, psychological abuse. After a year, I there's definitely kind of, I know that there are forces greater out there. Um, and so I know different people have different um, understandings and frameworks of that. So God, fate, um, karma, something was out there that had a hand in what kind of happened over the next six months. So I ended up ordering a book on Amazon about pimp psychology. Why I decided to do that, I don't know. Um, but I ended up reading it cover to cover in a day and um, started to realize this is exactly what these men have done to my life. I thought I was making bad decisions in relationships. I didn't realize that this was actually um, essentially like a program 
that these predators have put together and they know how to systematically manipulate and exploit women like me. Um, so that was really that light bulb moment of these are pimps. Um, it's not me mismanaging money. It's not me making bad decisions. This is abuse. Um, I still didn't identify as a trafficking victim per se, but definitely knew that these, these individuals were not healthy, safe people to be around and they weren't safe for my children to be around. So I called my family. My sister flew out to Vegas. Um, we loaded up my stuff and drove 16 hours through the night um, back here to Greeley. So that's how I ended up back in Greeley. Um, I was definitely in high school, one of the kids that was like, I'm never coming back to Greeley. Um, and here I am and I can't see being anywhere else. So um, at that point, really didn't know what to do. I felt very overwhelmed with, I have a criminal arrest record. I have no college education. I dropped out of college. Um, I have no work history. I had been a stay-at-home mom when I was married. I had a very short work history in between being married and being trafficked, and that was it. So looking at job prospects, there was, I, I didn't know how am I going to make ends meet and feed my kids. So even though I was away from my traffickers, I still was pushed into this economic um, corner where my only option at that time was to continue prostituting independently. Um, so back then, even five, six years ago, the language around that was, oh, she's a prostitute. She's choosing to sell herself. Um, that language has changed with the understanding. So yes, I was prostituting, but I was engaging in what is now known as survival sex. So that was how I was keeping a roof over my kids' heads. Um, that was how I was making sure that food was on the table every night. Um, it was not something that I was just living a life of luxury. And that is the reality for most individuals in the sex trade. So that lasted about six months. During that time though, that last six months in the, in the sex trade, I really had an opportunity to reconnect with my community. Um, and I got to see my family. I really hadn't seen my family for the last five years. They had seen me, they, you know, we talked on the phone here and there, but they were very disconnected from my life. And so they really made an effort to reconnect. And so every Sunday we started having Sunday dinner at my parents' house. And it was that simple of just seeing them. Um, they were really scared and worried and didn't really understand what was going on in my life and why I was doing the things that I was doing. Um, but they wanted to be a support and they recognized that judging me, lecturing me, preaching at me, yelling at me was not going to be an effective model of getting me to um, change behavior or change my perspective. Um, so that six months was really uh just absolutely critical in like the final breaking point. Um, December 1st, 2012, I was arrested for the 10th time um, up in Vail, Colorado. They did their first undercover operation in 30 or 40 years and they arrested a bunch of women. I was the first woman of the night to be arrested. They put all the other women in a holding cell together and they put me in solitary confinement. Um, to this day, again, I don't know why, there were some forces at play for sure. Laying in that cell was my absolute rock bottom. Realizing that, yes, I've been to jail 10 times now. I've been very, I had been very fortunate that I was able to post bail, so I was only ever in jail for 24 hours. Um, 
and I had always just been given probation or had to pay a fee, but 10 arrests, I knew that I was pushing the envelope with that and I would probably more than likely end up having to um, go to jail and do some actual jail time. I risked losing custody of my kids as a result of that, but also recognizing how much danger I was in every single night that I very well could end up dead. Um, and so that was, that was my breaking point, that 10th arrest. So I, the next day I posted bail and drove myself home and it actually was Sunday. So came home to family dinner and announced to my family at Sunday dinner. This was, this is how our family did Sunday dinner. So I announced at the dinner table that I had gone to jail again and my whole family, you know, you could just see the looks of hopelessness of like, when is this ever going to change? Um, but then I said, but I'm done. I, I cannot do this. I don't know what I need to do from here. I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I'm not making it doing this. And so again, my family was super supportive in that process of like, okay, we don't know what you need either, but we're here and we're going to make sure that you have what you need um, to survive. So that next year was a very um, painful, slow process of um, learning to sleep through the nights, um, just kind of enjoying the idea that I can eat whenever I want to, not when I'm told. Um, I can see my kids whenever I want to, not because I have met some invisible criteria that changes day to day. Um, all of just those really basic, what we think of as like basic functions as humans um, and as people in society, all of that was new to me. I was court ordered as a result of that last arrest to, I either needed to go to school or be employed as part of my probation. Um, and so I decided to do a little bit of both. So I found, I was very fortunate to find a part-time job working for, um, in a medical office and they were willing to overlook my arrest record. And, um, and I'm really thankful for that. A lot of employers don't give people like me a chance when, you know, they run that background check and 10 pages print out of arrests. Um, that's a really scary thing for an employer to see and to think like, can we trust this person? Um, so I'm really fortunate that I had that employer. I ended up working for that office for three years. And it, so I also then applied to go back to school because I recognized that as a single mom with no college degree and no work history, I, I had to do something that made gave me a different career path that, that really allowed me to access employment opportunities that would allow me to raise my children. So that's kind of like my story and that's where Free Art Girls starts is um, during my healing process, recognizing that I needed to speak out um, for a lot of survivors of different forms of violence, um, but specifically intimate partner and sex trafficking where that secrecy and shame is what keeps you under control for so long. Speaking out, writing, doing art, um, telling your story is such a, an important piece of that healing process. There is a journey to being set free. 
And for the past four years, Megan has been sharing her own journey of escaping the sex trade, but then asking the big follow-up question, what does it take to set others free as well? In the beginning of Free Our Girls, the first couple years, Megan started sharing her own story at different awareness events, and she ran into a huge problem. When people hear the words sex trafficking, and I was in this camp too while interviewing Megan, when they hear about sex trafficking, they think like the movie Taken, where foreign Eastern Bloc bad guys are kidnapping you and chaining you up. And people have this framework, and, and they ask this question of Megan still all the time. Why didn't you just leave? Specifically, early in the life of her nonprofit, Megan had a luncheon with an investor who just didn't get it, how this works. But the meeting changed how Megan approached the conversation of how to set someone free, and it helped her to develop research around what's called cultic theory. Um, and so she said, I just don't understand. If you weren't chained up, why didn't you just leave? Um, so very similar question to domestic violence survivors that get asked, why don't you just leave? Um, there's so much more at play than physical chains. Um, there's psychological chains and there's financial chains that you can't see that still hold people so captive. She just didn't know. She had watched the movie Taken, just like I had. And when I watched the movie Taken, I thought, that's not my experiences. I was being trafficked at the time that I saw Taken. And so I saw it and was like, oh, that's what trafficking looks like. Well, it wasn't what I was going through. So I didn't identify as my experiences actually by federal law being trafficking. And what I went through looked more like what most people who are sex trafficked in the U.S., that's what it looks like. And I kept getting similar responses. Oh, like in the movie Taken, we don't we don't have any clients that were kidnapped by these Eastern European organized crime rings. Like, what? That doesn't happen here. Or like, oh, they're bringing them in on shipping containers. And I'm like, no, we are living in your neighborhood. Um, we go to your schools. Um, we are your children. We are your wives. We're your sisters. We're your brothers. Like, we are a part of this community. Um, but because we have this mass media Hollywood perspective of it, agencies weren't identifying victims at that time. So you can't really provide services to a population that isn't even being identified in a community. So I looked it up and pimp controlled trafficking, which is the form of trafficking that I experienced, meets all 15 characteristics of a cultic group. Um, so it's commonly referred to as the game or the life. Um, over the last four years, I have focused my research on pimp controlled trafficking and building this cultic theory. So um, this past summer, I presented my cultic theory at the International Cultic Studies Association annual conference in Philadelphia. I've presented it at Villanova University. Um, all of our trainings here locally around service providers, identifying victims and understanding some of that um, coercion that happens. Uh, comes, we use cultic theory and everything, and it really is the foundation of Freer Girls' work and understanding it is a journey to freedom. It is not kicking a door open and just setting somebody free. Um, it is really a process to deprogram and then reintegrate, and it can take a really long time. Cultic theory made complete sense to me. Alienate people from their community, take away all their self-worth, increase their dependence, emotional and financial, and you've got control. Getting out of the sex trade, for many dealing with a sex trafficker, looks like escaping a cult. What does it take to set someone free? 
Well, it's the long process of getting them out of one extremely dangerous community and putting them in a healing one. So Free Our Girls started with spreading awareness, sharing Megan's story, but it's kept developing, first into deep research that could give them evidence-based approaches on how to help people. And then it's kept growing. They've started a job program for referrals they've got, survivors who want to change their lives. Free Our Girls gives them tools and training, especially to help overcome barriers to employment, like education, how to deal with your arrest record, healing processes, deprogramming, job skills. They've had two sets of referrals in the last couple years, and the girls sell items online. So they take professional photos, deal in customer service, shipping, but all the while together as a community, processing a new life and the trials they still face. Lastly, alongside Free Our Girls working with these local women, they're also reaching out across the U.S. and beyond in touch with hundreds on social media, letting them know they're there, they have services available. And then for a smaller population of those still in the sex trade or transitioning out, they send care packages out monthly. Packages filled with helpful items and gifts and inspiring quotes. We see you. Um, you are a part of our community, you belong, you're important, you're valued um, beyond a monetary amount that you can pay a, an abuser or an exploiter. You are valued as a human um, and you are worthy of, of respect and dignity because you are alive, you are a human. Um, there is no other qualifier. just such an honor to be along for the journey and and get to see these women overcome all odds and go on to do amazing things like I'm scared for the world quite honestly these women like once they have you know overcome and healed and processed whatever they go on to do like they're gonna just take over and and rock it doing that you still having Sunday Sunday dinners with, uh, yes. Family. Yeah. We still have Sunday dinners to this day. Yeah. And it's still, my mom's like the best cook. You know, you don't realize it as a kid. And then like you come home, like I love going to my mom's house on Sundays. My favorite thing about Free Our Girls is that it's a survivor-led um, organization. Survivors and victims are coming in. It's very personable. Um, because they know that um, someone has walked the path um, and knows what they have gone through. Um, so I love that it's a survivor-led organization. Um, and I just love the outreach that not only does, do we take care of our own corner of the world, country, um, but we also outreach to uh, let other uh, people know how they can help their corner um, of the world. Being that I am a survivor, um, I do have a criminal background with um, prostitution on it, and because of that, it's very hard to find employment. Uh, because of it, I'm considered a convicted felon. Um, and so, yeah, finding employment's very hard, and so when me and my family moved to Fort Collins and I was looking for employment and I just couldn't, find employment, um, I was put in touch with Megan, and um, just from the second, you know, that I met her, it just all seemed to click, and I feel like 
came to Fort Collins like for a reason. For me, it's just been a blessing because um, I've been able to um, find my path in life and um, hopefully we'll be able to continue uh, working past the job program um, and helping uh, free our girls grow. Big, wonderful, <laughs> great things have come from me being a part of Free Our Girls. Probably the thing that I love best um, about the program would be uh, just the job program um, overall. Um, the skills that we get to learn and um, such as like job readiness skills where we get to prepare ourselves um, before we go out into the real world and get a job and things like that. Um, and just that we, we address and process like triggers so we get to learn um, those skills as well. So I'm a survivor, so just things that would uh, trigger me or trigger us, um, um, as long as, as well as um, financial literacy skills, we get to um, learn how to manage money. So Free Girls has impacted me a lot. Um, I'm very thankful for Free Girls and the staff. They comfort us and they walk alongside us um, um, through our journey. I'm learning that, well, like I knew I had like a bunch of sexual trauma in my past and stuff, but what I didn't realize is that in my addiction, which I've been working through, um, I've been clean for the last 16 months, but I didn't realize that in my addiction, um, I became part of the escorting world or the prostitution world myself. And um, I, uh, it wasn't a very enjoyable experience, I can tell you that. Um, but I love working with Free Our Girls. It's, it's been a um, eye-opening and enlightening and inspirational experience for me. Writing the affirmation cards has been really good for me because not only do I get to read all these inspiring quotes and write them down for others, but then I can pray over the cards and hope that they get to the right person at the right time. And then um, also, um, if I find a quote that I like know I need, I can write one down for me and make a flower for myself and put it up somewhere where it needs to go. So I can read it every day too because affirmations are so powerful. You know, as humans, it's so easy for us to focus on the negative. And we always have these negative tapes that play in our head that, oh, you're so dumb, or you're so da-da-da, like, stupid, or, you know, the worst things we could ever call ourselves come to us the easiest. So the point of an affirmation is to reverse that and to give yourself something positive to say about yourself every day. And then the more positive things you say about yourself every day, the more you begin to believe it. And then it changes your path in the future and that's what I want to bring to these women is a more positive future because that's what's been given to me. Special thanks to Dave Farrell, a professor at Ames Community College who helped with sound engineering for this episode. Thanks to Megan Lundstrom, director of Free Our Girls for her interview and also to Angie Henderson, who helped me with this episode. She's a sociologist from the University of Northern Colorado who's been partnering with Megan in her research. And thank you to the clients of Free Our Girls who gave interviews featured at the end of this episode. 
Also, thanks to Paul Beveridge, whose song Ready was used during this show. You can hear the song with lyrics if you look up Son of St. James, the song Ready. Thanks to Weld Community Foundation in sponsoring the creation of this work. For information on becoming a fund holder or applying for a grant if you're a nonprofit or looking into scholarships if you're a student, head to weldcommunityfoundation.org. Our last episode of season one will be releasing in the beginning of December, titled The Bells of the Season. Thanks for listening to Weld Found. Thank you.